Ezra chapter 5 is the last chapter and chapter 6 with it, the last two chapters of the period of the initial return to Judah from the captivity in Babylon. Remember they came at the uh, approval of the King Cyrus in 536 B.C. with a little under 50,000 people traveling that almost 900 miles across the desert uh, of the Arabian Plains into the Judean territory and found the city of Jerusalem and all the surrounding cities and other communities were completely ruined by the Babylonians and hadn't had anything done to repair the damage, even by the fact that there were still some people in the land. Primarily, they had been farming the land as much as they were able. Uh, They didn't really establish any large communities, uh, and it was still quite a mess. And especially the city of Jerusalem, uh, they had only come for one reason, to build the temple. And they had started that in earnest, and they got as far as getting the foundation laid, which was a great victory for them. They were so pleased to have been able to do that, even though there was opposition. Uh, And that opposition, however, became so difficult for them to endure that they stopped at that point and did not continue building. And I don't know if you realize it, but in the last several weeks, both in our Thursday night and in our Sunday morning teaching series, we've talked a lot about opposition. Uh, Paul the Apostle had so much opposition in the presentation of the gospel as he went from city to city. The people of Israel coming back into the land, into Judah, facing opposition from those, what ultimately become the Samaritan race, those foreigners who did not want the Jews to succeed in building their temple. That opposition is something that we need to be aware of as we face the same kinds of trials and opposition, if you will, in this present day. And one of the things that I'm very concerned about is that we need to be absolutely certain of what God has said with regard to his willingness to keep us and to protect us and to guide us in the face of any opposition that may come our way. Remembering and knowing that Jesus said very clearly that the church is going to be built by him and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If God be for us, the word of God says, who can be against us? And the answer is obvious. Nothing can be against us. So we need to take that very, very seriously, in spite of the fact that in these last days, and I believe that we are going to be facing a certain amount of opposition, if it hasn't already begun in our own lives personally, it certainly has begun in the world around us uh, in many different places. And there is a hatred that is growing against both the Jews and, I believe, also the Christians. And we're going to be engulfed, I believe, in that opposition, and we need to know how we are going to deal with it. And so the Word of God helps us to really get a good sense of what is best for us when we're having to deal with the forces that are coming against us. And 
This passage in, in, in the uh, Word of God reminds us that when we get overly troubled under the weight of opposition, oppression, and, and uh, the things that the world tosses against us, it can cause us to fall back and to not move forward the way we should be. And that's what was happening in the people of Jewish history at the time of their return from the Babylonian captivity. They started strong. They got fairly far along in getting the foundation built. But then the opposition was so great that it resulted in their turning away from their commitment to finishing the work. And God wants us not only to start well, but he wants us to finish well. So that's where we're going to be looking tonight as we turn to Ezra chapter 5, where now it's been 15 years since they had done any work on the building of this temple. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 5, Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah the son of Idu, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Josedach rose up and began to build the house of God which is in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them helping them. So after that period of reluctance to do anything, God finally steps in and he persuades the people to get back at the job that they had started. And he uses prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And Zechariah and Haggai were both prophets, but also Zechariah's father, Ido. Uh, these were some of the very last of the Old Testament prophets, as we know of them. There were a few others, yes, but the ones that we know in particular uh, that actually, actually written uh, part of the Word of God were Haggai and Zechariah, and lastly, Malachi. But I'd like to turn, before we go any further, to those two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. I want to read some portions of their prophecies as it relates to this particular time in the history of the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah in particular. So turn first with me, if you don't mind, all the way to almost the end of the New Old Testament to the book of Haggai. There's Haggai, Zechariah, and then there's Malachi, and then there's a the New Testament. So you should be able to find it somewhere in the middle of your Bible, the book of Haggai. I'll give you a few moments to get there. I'd like to read with you just a few verses of Scripture in the very first chapter of the book because it gives us exactly the information that we should want to know with regard to why Haggai has begun this prophetic statement that he's recorded for us in the book that is known by his name. So chapter 1 of the book of Haggai, beginning with verse 1, says this, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, or by Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And so this is what we can get from this introduction, is a very specific timing of when Haggai began to proclaim the word of God to the people in Jerusalem. It tells us it was in the second year of King Darius, and that would be five 
let's see, it was 536, and now this is 15 years later, so now this would be 521. Am I mad? Yes, 521 B.C., and it's in the, the second year of King Darius, so that brings it down to 519. Oh, I'm sorry, that's still 521. That's the second year. Um, I was trying to think of when it was that Cyrus turned or, or passed off the scene. I guess, I believe it was 523 or 522. So this is where Darius comes into place, and he's there in 521 B.C., and it's his second king of second year of his reign, and it's in the sixth month of the year. That's the Jewish calendar or uh, Jewish uh, uh, religious year, not the civil calendar, but the religious calendar. So that would equate to sometime around August of that year, 522 B.C. And it tells us that Haggai spoke to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua the son of Jehozadak. So he's there in Jerusalem speaking directly to them. And this is what he says in verse 2, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, a time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. What Haggai is saying is, you people have turned away from building the house of the Lord. And as a result, in trying to build your own house, which hasn't really amounted to much of anything, you're lacking all kinds of benefit, all kinds of provision that God would love to give to you. But he's holding back that which he desires to give to you to bring you to the place of understanding that God is not pleased with the progress that you have made and certainly because you have not made any progress, all of these things have come upon you. You're not getting enough food. You don't have enough uh, milk or water to drink. You don't have enough clothing to keep you warm. You may be earning wages, but it's not enough really to make ends meet. And that condition is brought on not by God, but by themselves. And then he continues to say in verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and bring, build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I call for a drought in the land, and on the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. So God has brought this calamity, if you will, to the people who have returned because they're not really doing what they know to be God's will. It's unfortunate that when God has made it so very clear that what he wants from us must be done, 
and yet we turn and think that it's not so important after all. But it certainly was to God then. Why would it not be important to God now? So I think this is very applicable to all of us as well. Don't let oppression slow you down from doing what you know to be God's will. Zechariah also says very much the same thing. But Zechariah is slightly different. He is a vision prophet. He sees several different visions that he records in his great book. And uh, it's a very good book to read, although it's much longer than Haggai. But I'm only going to read a portion of chapter 1 and then turn quickly to a portion in chapter 4 before we get back into our study in the book of Ezra. So Zechariah is just one page beyond the book of Haggai. So if you'll turn a page, you'll see the book of Zechariah, chapter 1, where it says when he began his ministry. It says that in verse 1 of chapter 1, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. So then he asked the question, Your fathers, where are they? Don't you remember? Because they did not heed and they did not hear, God judged them. So Zechariah is speaking a very harsh word against the people to warn them. The same thing can happen to them that happened to their fathers if they don't remember to do what God has called them to do. Note again in the very first verse it says, He spoke these words in the eighth month of Darius' second year. Now that's just two months after Haggai had begun to prophesy. Now Zechariah also is doing the same. Now, if you'll turn with me to chapter 4 of Zechariah, we'll read one of the most well-known verses of Scripture in the Old Testament. Verse 6 of chapter 4, where the angel of the Lord has come to Zechariah with a vision, and the angel is talking with him, and he says, in verse 5, he says, Do you not know what these are? And I won't go into detail about the olive trees that he's just been shown a vision for, but Zechariah's response is, No, my Lord. And so the angel, angel answered and said to me, Zechariah speaking, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That is a very, very wonderful verse for all of us to recognize and apply every day of our lives. It's not by might, it's not by power, it's by the Spirit of the Lord. Jesus himself said, without me you can do nothing. And I'm convinced, my friends, that we need to rely on the Spirit of the Lord to lead us into his truth, to lead us into that which he wants for us to do for his glory. Because it is through the Spirit that we can be justified. It is through the Spirit that we can be sanctified. It is by the Spirit that we are being transformed into the very image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What a glorious thing it is to have the Spirit of God 
so powerfully available to every one of us. He's in us. He guides us. He encourages us. He comforts us. He gives us knowledge and wisdom. Let us take hold of that which he desires to give. So that's the prophets who have now come to the people of God in Jerusalem and they've spoken these words of prophecy to the leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua. And the result is they begin then to restore that which had been left undone. And again in verse 2 of chapter 5, where we left off in here, the book of Ezra, it says, So Zerubbabel, the son of Jeltel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So God encouraged them with the men of God who had come to prophesy some very harsh words, but yet they were words that sunk into the hearts of the people and it encouraged them ultimately to take on that task of completing the work. Now that they've begun again in earnest, continuing the project they had left off for so many years, verse 3 tells us this, At that same time, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them, Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Now that's not the city wall, that's the wall of the temple that he's talking about. That's all that they've been working on. And again, now we see opposition. Just as soon as they start getting back into the work, they're completely surprised, I'm sure, by the sudden surge of opposition that comes at precisely the very time that they begin to do the work. It must have been something of a uh, concern for them, I would think. They must have thought, wait a minute, did we not hear from God just now? Was that not a prophecy that came from the word of God to us? And now why is this opposition taking place? What's going on with this? Why is this happening? Those are valid questions that we all should want to ask. But the bottom line is, in this particular time, that opposition did not slow them down. They apparently have taken the stand that God wants them to take. Perhaps this is all that this is, a test. But it turns out to be a very great blessing indeed for them to continue the work. As we read on further, it says in verse 4, Then, accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. They had nothing to hide. So they told them, Zerubbabel and Joshua and the other elders, they're all the men that are involved in this building. Verse 5 says, But the eye of their God, the Jews' God, was upon the elders of the Jews, so that they could not make them cease. The people who come against them could not make them cease till the report could go to Darius. So they came to the conclusion that there had to be a letter written to King Darius to see if he would agree with them that the work should stop, just as it had been stopped before when they sent the letter to uh, Cyrus and, and, and forced the people to stop the work. And, and later on, they sent another letter uh, during the resistance of the rebuilding of the temple and also the rebuilding of the wall, we will find. We saw that last time. Remember, there was that parenthesis where the Jews had now come back 
as we will see in chapters 7 through 10, they had come back to rebuild the city wall, and there again was opposition then. And then a letter was sent to King Artaxerxes in the same fashion here, several years before that event, we see in chapter 5 the same thing is happening with King Darius. The opposition comes, and they're going to write this letter to King Darius to see if they can't get the king to approve of their desire to stop this work that is going on in Jerusalem. And this, it says in verse 6, is a copy of the letter that Tatanai sent. The governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai and his companions, the Persians, who were in the region beyond the river, to Darius the king. They sent a letter to him in which was written thus, To Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we went into the province of Judea to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber is being laid in the walls, and this work goes on diligently and prosperous in their hands. I'm interested in the fact that they referred to the God of Israel as the great God. Did they know something about the great God as perhaps all of the people who lived in that region might have retained the stories of how God took care of his people and how God judged his people during the Babylonian captivity. I'm sure that that probably was the case. They recognized that the God of uh, the Jews is a great God. They didn't recognize that he is the one and only true God, but they at least recognized the fact that he was a God who was worthy of praise, especially for the people of Israel. Verse 9 says, And then we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, Who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. So they're inquiring with King Darius uh, what they should be doing, and they're introducing this situation to him in this letter. And continuing on, it's a very long letter, actually, it goes to the end of the chapter, but in verse 11 it says, And thus they returned us an answer, saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed. But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. So that's what these people are writing to King Darius. That is a response of the Jews as they gave it to these men. It's interesting to note, they owned it. They said, the God of our fathers was provoked and he was given over to great wrath because we had turned away from him. So they're owning the sin. They know it is so. That's the reason that God judged them. They have no doubt about that. And so they're explaining to this man that uh, this is the reason why we're doing this. We were told to. We were given the responsibility to. It says in verse 13, However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon, those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon and they were given to one named Sheshbazar. And by the way, remember that 
name Sheshbazar is the um, Babylonian name for Zerubbabel. He's the governor of that territory of Judea, assigned by the king. So it says, they were given to one named Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these articles, go carry them to the temple site that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. So, now they've told Tautiel that this is the decree of King Cyrus when he was first king over Babylon, when he first began to reign in 536 B.C. So now in verse 16, it continues to the end of the chapter and saying, the letter finishing with these words, then the same Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even until now, it has been under construction and it is not finished. That's 15 years where it's not been completed. Verse 17 finishes the letter by saying, Now therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. So they're not taking matters into their own hands, as had been done in a previous time. They're at least being helpful in the sense that they are willing to take the time to find out if those things are true that the people of God had spoken. So they include this information in the letter that they send to Darius. Now, it takes a while to get a letter from Jerusalem to Babylon. Not quite nine months, I'm sure, because the carriers of letters would have ridden much faster. But it still would have taken an amount of time to get there. And then there had to have been an amount of time that it would take for the search of any documents that could prove or disprove what the Jews had spoken. But chapter 6 gives us the information that there was indeed a letter, a decree. And now King Darius is here in chapter 6 giving his response. In verse 1 of chapter 6 it says, Then King Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And at Akmitha, and in some of your translations it's Ekbatana, but it is the same city of the northern province of Assyria, which is where Cyrus had a winter home. He was there, apparently, instead of at Babylon, when he made the decree, or at least where it was recorded and it was filed in their library. The ancient peoples kept massive libraries. Um, they kept records, and the records were stored in these very large buildings, and much of that has been disclosed by archaeologists in our present era. But this particular place, Akmitha, or Ekbatana, is a place where there was a palace, and it's in the province of Media, which is north of Iraq in the present-day Kurdish country. It's in that palace, in that province, and a scroll was found, and in it a record was written thus. And so now we have the actual record of the apparently entire declaration by King Cyrus. We only know of part of it that was given to us in chapter 1, which we started this book in. Now in chapter 6, we're getting a much more complete, uh, the almost entire document. 
And it says in verse 3, In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations of it be firmly laid, its height 60 cubits, and its width 60 cubits. So it's 90 feet high, 90 feet wide. It's not anywhere near the size of the Solomon's temple, but it is a very large structure still by that standard in that day. It'll stand very high over all of the buildings that are might possibly be in Jerusalem at that present time, if there are any at all standing. But verse 4 says, With three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber, let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury. That's important also. Remember, the Medo-Persian Empire, its rulers made decrees that could not be reversed. That's important. It was irrevocable when a serious, uh, when a uh, uh, Medo-Persian king made a declaration. Not like with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar could make a statement one day and retract it the next because he was completely sovereign. There was no rule that said to him, you cannot take back what you have made as a decree. That wasn't the case with the Medo-Persian kingdom. They were very, very legal in their strictness strict in their legality, rather, of how even the king could never, ever take back a decree that has been recorded. So once it's recorded, it becomes law. And this is the decree that Cyrus has made, and it must stand. That's very important. It tells us in verse 5, also, let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem, and brought back uh, from Babylon, let them be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its place, and deposit them in the house of God. Many gold cups and silver trays and utensils, all of that which was taken out of the temple that were still in Babylon, were brought back by the people of God by virtue of Cyrus's decree. Also, remember, it says that it is going to be at the expense of his own treasury, the king of Medo-Persia. Verse 6 says, Now, therefore, Tatnai, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai, and your companions, the Persians who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. Now, this is Darius speaking. Darius has said, we found the letter. This is the content of the letter. And now having read the letter, this is my decree. And so Darius is now telling Tatnai and his friends, stay away from them. Keep yourselves far from there. Let the work of this house proceed, it says in verse 7. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. So Darius is giving final approval that the Temple of God must continue to be built because it was a decree by Cyrus and that decree cannot be broken. Now, in addition to that, Darius here adds his own decree. So it says in verse 8, Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews. For the building of this house of God, let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river. In other words, the taxes that you collect, Talchel or Tatnai, at the taxes that you collect, uh, 
they are going to go to the building of this temple. That probably didn't excite these men very much, but they had to obey. They wanted to find out if there was a way to stop the work. Instead, they ended up having to pay for the work out of their own tax money. Not only that, reading again from the middle of verse 8, let the, cost of, let the cost be paid at the king's expense from the taxes on the region beyond the river. This is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. Don't delay. Don't wait to get this to them. Do it as soon as you are able. And whatever they need, verse 9 says, young bulls, rams, and lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. So he wants to receive some blessing from his generosity, so he's asking them to make sure that they recognize the fact that he wants the people of God to offer up those sacrifices and pray for him as well as to pray for their own needs. Lastly, he has another portion to the same decree. Again, all of it irrevocable. Verse 11 says, Also I issue a decree that, that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected, and let him be hanged on it, and let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. So he gives this final decree as a warning to anyone who wants to try to get in the way of God's people. Remember I said, when you face opposition and you trust in God, God provides for you. Now, this is what God is saying to the enemies of God. You will not pass. There is no way that they would ever consider doing anything that would hinder the work now that this decree has been made. The green light has been given by Darius and the assurance that all is well for the people of God is written down for them to know that their God is doing a mighty thing on their behalf. That's what I hope for us all to see, that God is willing to do great and mighty things on our behalf if we will only trust Him to complete that which He has begun in us. Verse 12 continues this letter, And may the God who causes His name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it, to destroy this house of God which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree, let it be done diligently. As it turned out, that temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. But I believe what Darius has said there, God heard, and God did judge the Roman Empire it took a few hundred years, but the Roman Empire came to nothing because they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. There's going to be another temple built, but it will be built by the Antichrist. And that is a temple that does not fit in God's perfect plan. It's a temple that they will build on their own without God's approval, except that it is part of the end days prophetic word that temple must exist in Jerusalem, but it's not the temple of God. 
is only a temple of the Antichrist. It serves that purpose alone, and it will be destroyed. But there will be a fourth temple that will be built. And Ezekiel gives us the details of that in chapters 40 to the remainder of the the, uh, book of that great prophetic book. And it's so wonderful to know that there is going to be God's temple once again in the city of Jerusalem where the King of Kings will sit on his throne judging the world with a rod of iron. That day is coming. But this temple that is being built by Ezra, not by Ezra, but by Zerubbabel and Joshua and all of his companions will be built because God instructed it to be done. Nothing will get in the way of what God says must be done. Now, yes, there was a delay of over 15 years. We're going to find that it will take a few more years to finish the work. But the work was finished. And the rest of the chapter talks about the fact that they now have a green light from God to proceed. It tells us in verse 13, Then Tatnai, governor of the region beyond the river, Shethar, Bosnai, and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the Lord of Israel, and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now, Artaxerxes was also a king that followed after these other kings, and the encouragement of Artaxerxes comes during the time of Ezra. We will find out that information when we move on to chapter 7. But here in the remainder of this chapter, we see the results of their having completed the job. It says in verse 15, Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Now the month that they're referring to is, according to the Hebrew religious calendar, the last last month of the year. It's just before the first month of their new calendar year under the religious system where they would offer sacrifices in observation of the Passover and first fruits and the feast of the, the, the beginning spring calendar, the beginning of their religious year. And the temple was f- finished on that third day of that month in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So it took a total of 21 years to build this temple. It's interesting to note, by the way, that this temple remained throughout the time until Jesus' day, and in Jesus' day, during the king, king, the reign of uh, Herod the Great, Herod himself began a project to enlarge the temple, to bless the Jewish people by making the temple so much better than it ended up having been from the time of Zerubbabel until that day. And it tells us in the book of John that it was over 40 years in the building of it. As a matter of fact, historians tell us that it took a total of 46 years to build that temple. It was an expansion of Ezra's temple or Zerubbabel's temple. But that temple was the basic core of the temple that Herod expanded upon. It was still standing in Jesus' day. It tells us in verse 
16, Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. I'm sure that they did. What a great celebration that must have been. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God. 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. I'd like to point out to you that the people who came back from captivity, from the Babylonian captivity, were not only descendants of Judah and descendants of Levi, descendants of Benjamin. Levi didn't have any land that they could call their own except for the cities of refuge. However, they were there in Babylon. But not only those tribes, but take note of the fact that in verse 17, they're offering an offering, a sin offering for all 12 tribes, according to the number of tribes of Israel. That tells me that every one of the tribes was represented by some of the people from those tribes in that return from captivity to Judah. We're told in the book of Chronicles that many of the northern ten tribes came down into Judah because they wanted to worship the true God. And during that very difficult time of apostasy and judgment, just before the Assyrians completely destroyed the northern ten tribes, many of those people groups came down into Judah and began a new life there. And so... I'm convinced that they were represented, all 12 tribes, plus the tribe of Levi, although Levi would not have any particular need for offering for themselves because a high priest would do that on their behalf, but also the 12 tribes, other 12 tribes, were given special offering, a sin offering at this time. Take note also of the fact that the numbers of animals that were slain, a hundred bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, not very many compared to Solomon's offering. When Solomon dedicated his temple, there were 20,000 oxen slaughtered. There were over 100,000 sheep and lambs slaughtered for that dedication. Way more than what were offered here. But smallness doesn't matter to God. And I'm so glad of that. We happen to be a relatively small body of believers in our little church here at Safe Harbor Church. But smallness doesn't matter to God. It's not how big your offering is. It is the heart that God is interested in. Remember the story that we're told in the Gospel record where the Lord was standing in the temple with His disciples And he saw the very wealthy men coming into the treasury in the temple and giving great amounts of their offerings in the public's eye, making it known that they were giving unto the Lord very visibly. And the disciples were inspired by such amounts of giving that they were doing in the temple at the time. And he pointed out to Jesus saying, Lord, look at what they're doing. Look at all the resources they're giving in their tithes and offerings unto the Lord in this temple. And then 
as they were speaking, a very elderly widow came into the temple. She was impoverished. And she came to the place where the offerings were given. And she took out two mites, not even a penny, and dumped them into the offering and walked away. And Jesus said, Do you see that woman? He said, She gave more than all of the others because she gave out of her necessity. She sacrificed. They weren't sacrificing anything. They still had great riches. To them, giving that money didn't cost them hardly anything. Remember when David was offered by the uh, man on the temple ground that would ultimately be the place where the temple would be built. Before the temple was built, David was being judged by God. And an angel came and God withheld his judgment because David had prayed a prayer that God answered. And the owner of that property, having seen apparently something that was of a spiritual nature, he wanted to give the land to David so David could offer up a sacrifice to God there. And David said, no, I will not offer anything to God that costs me nothing. So the principle is very, very clear in the scripture. We should be willing to give of ourselves. And I'm not talking about tithes and offerings here. I'm talking about offering ourselves up as holy spiritual sacrifices offering up ourselves as living sacrifices unto the Lord, giving up of ourselves to Him, to please Him, to do His will. There's not much that I can give, but I want to give it all if God would receive it. And that's the idea that is being presented here. They wanted to give everything they could. It wasn't much, but in God's eyes, it was wonderful. It was a great blessing for God to see them give as much as they did though it was very little in their own eyes. Verse 19 continues and says, And the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. That's the precise day that that would happen, that would have to be done. It says also in verse 20, For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. So they made themselves ready. They had time to get themselves purified in the ceremonial washings that always had to be done by the priests and by those who were involved in the slaughtering of the Passover lambs. And then they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. Then the children of Israel, who had returned from the captivity, ate together all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, For the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And so we have this wonderful blessing of the people of God. They were able to finish the temple just in time for this wonderful time of worship of their God on the Passover and on the Feast of First Fruits. What a celebration. What a joyful time it must have been. And I am so glad that God gives us so much detail in the lives of those who put their trust and hope in the God of Israel. Because He is 
the God who has never changed. He's always the same. He's never going to change. He will always be the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. That gives me great confidence in knowing that my God will supply all my need in Christ Jesus. That's the promise. He gives exceeding abundantly above everything we ask or think. That's the promise. He loves to give good gifts unto His children. That's the promise. He wants to give of the Holy Spirit just because we are willing to ask. That's the promise. Oh, people of God, ask and receive today because He wants to give generously, abundantly. He'll open a window of blessing and pour it out such a blessing that you cannot contain. I'm convinced of it. Just trust in Him for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Grace and peace.